I'm Alexis. And I'm Mallory. And this is Newtcast. So if you've been listening to Newtcast so far, you know that in our last episode we talked about Cursed Child themes as well as a few characters. This is part two of that conversation. If you haven't heard the first part, we recommend you go back. Unless you are really interested in the side characters and the plot, that's what we're going to get into today. Just a warning, there are spoilers in this episode, so keep that in mind. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Moving on. Do we have anything more to say about Draco? We've talked about him a lot already. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier about Draco, but I really appreciated how he called out Hermione and Harry. Like, you only like them because they're famous. You only like Hermione because she's his friend. Because when I was watching the play at the first and seeing Hermione as Minister for Magic, I was like, ah, that seems just kind of because she's Hermione, and that seems just because he's Harry. Like, aren't there other characters in the world that might fit these roles better. It just seemed like these are the only jobs we know about, and so of yeah. course these are the only ones that they can get. That is part of why it felt so unnatural. Yeah, but I, I really like that Draco brought that up, because I'm like, okay, they thought about this. <laughs> it's not just, like, convenient. It's, oh, maybe they did get that because they are the trio. So, That's I don't know. That's a good point. I did like that about Draco. And also, just the line about him, it's exceptionally lonely being Draco Malfoy. Break my heart. But we talked about that, so mm-hmm. we move on. I guess, basically, to summarize my feelings on him, is when I felt like he was starting to become sympathetic as I was reading, I was like, okay, they're definitely going this direction. I got very nervous because I thought it was going to be bad. Right. And I was so pleasantly surprised. I thought they handled it really well. I thought the arc that we saw felt really natural. I know a lot of people disagree, but that's how I felt about it. He had some of the best lines in the play. He did. He was so wise. Mm-hmm. Which, holy cow, who would have seen that coming? Draco Malfoy. Been through it all. Uh, Scorpius? <laughs> I, I don't know what, what more there is to say other can than we the have fact a that whole, we loved him. Can we have a whole episode on Scorpius? Oh. It might be in uh, 2017, but it's coming to a podcast near you. <laughs> what a darling. There is one thing that I think we should talk about that I mentioned to Alexis earlier, um, which was that as I was reading the play... Originally, he didn't feel very Slytherin to me. Mm-hmm. And before you jump down my throats and say, oh, it's just because he was a good guy, no, that's not why I thought that. I just felt like he wasn't portraying a whole lot of Slytherin traits. I mean, he didn't seem particularly cunning or ambitious. He was definitely loyal to his own, but he was only loyal to his own because he only had one friend. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but we can cover that when we go into houses. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. I have other thoughts about him that aren't Slytherin-related, though. Okay. But yeah, we'll definitely get into houses in a little bit. But before that, he's kind of paralleled with everyone. He's also Harry, but he's also, like, Hermione. That one line where they, like, respond at the exact same time, and Ron's like, there's two of them. (laughs) That was was great. That's right. He was able to lengthen the time that they were with Delphi, just trying to explain to her her logical fallacy. And, like, as I was reading that, I'm like, you are the smartest uh, wizard of your age. (laughs) He's a shining star, that Scorpius Malfoy. I also like his arcs in the play, where he becomes more and more responsible and also more and more brave. That's true. And, I mean, I guess we're going to talk about this later, but I saw those Slytherin traits come out in him more throughout the play. Mm Mm-hmm. There's this one line that I actually found for the first time reading it, where when Albus is first telling Amos his plans of, like, we know what we're doing, and he's like, 
do we? <laughs> and Albus is like, we're ready to put our lives at risk. And he's like, are we? Are we? <laughs> but at the end of the play, he's the one who's saying, I'm willing to die if it'll stop Voldemort returning. And Albus is like, are you? Aww. And I was just like, he knows what he's doing now. Like, he's taking action and being responsible for what he has to get done. And I really like that he's a lot. Taking ownership of his own story. Also, like, Albus being like, let's fix it. And Scorpius is like, is the wrong answer. <laughs> Come on, Albus. Think about this. <laughs> Voice of reason. And then his arc about being brave, it it definitely came about when he was in the darkest timeline. You know, I'm pretty much good with fear. And he also talks about later on, I think I'd like to tell my dad that I'm occasionally capable of more bravery than he might think I am. Because that, like, ties everything together with, I'm brave, I'm being proactive, and I am saving the world, even though his father is more prone to think he's a follower rather than a leader. Mm-hmm. So I think he was able to show that. And that's also a Gryffindor trait, and we'll get into that later, because I think the nuances of all of these traits intermingling between the characters is amazing! Let's talk about Albus Potter. <laughs> I just like how self-centered he is. It's so great how much he thinks he's not like his father when he is the most oh like his father. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I mean, I mentioned that a little bit, but like, okay... He jumps to conclusions. He's rash. He he has a woe is me sentiment. Yeah, he feels bad for himself when it's not strictly necessary. I'm still the child of Voldemort without a mother giving sympathy to the boy who doesn't ever give anything back. Though. Don't get us wrong. I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I love Albus. I like Albus, but I also appreciated that he wasn't just like this perfect child. That yeah, he had to struggle had with to so much. So bad for. And that's one thing, too. Sam Clement, who plays him... He is getting praised. So is Anthony Boyle, who's who plays Scorpius. But like people are just like going head over heels over Anthony Boyle. Sam Clement did such a good job. He did so well, and Albus is like so near and dear to my heart because of it. He's just so flawed, and I love that about him. It's great to be able to show a character that you want to smack upside the head, <laughs> and yet you still love him. Like mm-hmm. that's a job well done. Yeah. Oh, and the the fact that Delphi is like. Your weakness is just like your father. It's friendship. Like, she was like, I thought it was pride. I thought it was trying to impress your father. And honestly, like, so did everyone. Like, watching and reading the play, you're just like, why are you so self-centered? But it's more than that. It's his friendship with Scorpius that is his biggest draw. And what she considers his biggest weakness, which we consider his greatest strength. Which, you know, one of the messages of the play, so. Bing, bing, bing. Shall we talk about Delphi? (laughs) Yes. Just the fact that she exists is weird, so it's a weird subject to talk about. I mean, I don't know if this is more of a plot thing or a character thing, but did it feel as obvious to you as it felt to me that she was the bad guy? Like, she just felt so manipulative, and everything she said, I was like, double meaning in that! That was an interesting thing. You mentioned that, and watching the play, I had no idea until like moments before. I think I had the realization as Scorpius had the realization in that owlery scene. Yeah, I she felt weird to me in the beginning, but I didn't know if it was just because she was a new character in this yeah. play who wasn't necessarily written I didn't know if it was bad writing. Belief. Yeah, I, that's the thing. <laughs> that's I couldn't what I thought it was. it was bad writing or if I really was picking up these vibes, but the second she shows up at Hogwarts mm-hmm. and is like, hey, I'm just here to see how things are going. Yeah. I'm on your team. <laughs> also, I got into Hogwarts somehow, you know, so clearly she's a lot more powerful than she lets on. Yeah. And then she, it was especially the line where she's talking about how I wasn't well as a child and mm-hmm. spent a lot of time alone. I was like, bad guy. 
That's, I mean, I know a J.K. Rowling hint when I see one. Right. That was the second where I was like, okay, that's where this is going. And everything from there on, once I started reading it from that perception, I was like, I don't know if this is supposed to be as obvious as it is. Talking to people between the plays, like, I was trying to theorize as best as I could. I think I mentioned that last podcast. I just really wanted to, like, figure out what, what was happening and what was coming next. And talking to people between plays, I don't think anyone picked up on her being evil. They picked up on her being weird. I thought she was the long-lost daughter of Cedric Diggory. That was uh, my theory. <laughs> it might have been easier because I was reading it in the text without having to see her performance. And yeah. she was probably a lot, you know, more bubbly. And she oh, was she was so likable. I liked her a lot. Because she had, like, this little robot thing. Was that even mentioned? Robot? Like, she pretended to be a robot when, like, um, Amos Diggory was calling her? No. Oh, my gosh. That's your first introduction to her. She's talking to Albus by the stairs, and he's like, Delphi! And she's like, ugh, here I go again. And she's like, this is like this robot thing it towards, and just everyone laughs. She's likable. I thought maybe that just got lost on the reading. It probably, that probably has a lot to do with it, just the different mediums in which we first experienced her. Yeah, to me it felt pretty heavy-handed, so... I, okay, so at first, and like for the past month, I did not like her at all. I hated Delphi. I thought she was too one-dimensional and didn't think she was well thought out and it's just a convenient way to get Voldemort to come back into the picture and really lazy and I was just really negative about it. Well, I'm glad that you have further perspective on that because I'm still at that point. <laughs> so let's hear what you have. I mean, I have a lot of theories about her, but yeah. they're theories. They're not like, oh, I appreciate this about this nuanced character they've given us. Okay, so I have two theories and a nuance. Okay. Okay. Bring it on. Theory one. Is she really Voldemort's daughter? She thinks she is because she can speak parcel tongue, but there's still a line of Voldemort left through Martha Stewart, who is the squib daughter of Isolt Sayre in Ilvermorny. Who could speak parcel tongue? And I did read this theory. She sent it to me. So I actually have experienced this one, and I love it. We'll put the link in the description because it's, it's too long to it's get long. into here. But um, it's very interesting, and it's a very, very interesting. Read. And if it were true, it's connecting, it's linking all of the Harry Potter books, the Pottermore writings, and a potentially fantastic beast with the Cursed Child. And I think that would be, like, really incredible cool. if she was able to do that. Second thing within that theory is the fact that she's Vila. Or she's connected to some sort of creature that's Vila-like. One description of the Vila, I think that comes from the Harry Potter wiki, it calls it Vila semi-human magical beings, beautiful women with white gold hair and skin that appears to shine moon bright. When angry, their faces elongate into sharp, cool beak bird heads and long, scaly wings burst from their shoulders. So, like... I was so confused when she started flying and she had, like, this wing-like thing. Wait, did she have wings? I don't know if they were trying to, like... Because she had, like, this feathered coat. So I wasn't sure if those were wings or not. Oh, okay. Vila are also known to marry wizards, though traits only showed up in females, which she is. And it's unknown whether half-blooded Vila can throw fire or transform into harpy-like creatures as their full-blooded relatives can. And so I think all of these weird quirks about her having, like, silvery blue hair, about being connected to a bird about flying out of nowhere and having, like, these superpowers. I feel like it's because she's a half-blooded witch. Also the fact that Albus is super into her. Yeah. And Scorpius is not. I don't know how that relates to Scorpius, but... I don't know. Personal theory. (laughs) Scorpius is focusing more on how Albus's interest in Delphi is taking away, potentially, from his own relationship with Albus. It's jealousy. So... It definitely explains his, like, sudden crush, however innocent it is. Just all of a sudden he likes this girl who's, like, ten years his senior. 
Yikes. And so here's the other thing about selfie that really got me thinking. I'm just going to read this. It's a post I'm going to link down in the description. It says, Delphi, like Amos Diggory, wasn't able to accept the past. She didn't want to accept being an orphan, not having a family, so she went to great and very destructive lengths to try and change things. So, in the same way Voldemort was Harry's opposite in the books, a man willing to kill to preserve his own life, Harry willing to die to let others live, Delphi is Harry's opposite and cursed child. Harry sacrifices the thing he's wanted more than anything, which is a normal childhood of loving parents, for the good of the world. Delphi is willing to drag the world down to hell in order to resurrect her family. I can see more of, like, how they were trying to make choices so big. Like, it's the choices to determine who we are far more than our abilities. We know that quote well. Because she had the sort of the same kind of upbringing of, like, abuse and terrible parenting as Harry. And yet she made all the wrong choices where he was making the right ones. So, I don't know. I just thought... She she did have more to her when you compare her to other characters. I think standing alone, she's still a little weak. Yeah, and we also just didn't get to see a whole lot of backstory for her. I mean, she just right. shows up, and we just, in the time of this play, we don't really get to see any character traits of her beyond evil, obsessive, goal-focused, and very, very manipulative. Right. I think one thing that I actually just realized is now that also lends more credence to her being the daughter of Voldemort and Bellatrix in actuality is the fact that her name is Delphine, which is the name of a star. Right. Which all of the blacks do. Right. But they very well could have stolen her from someone else and just given her that name, so I don't know how much credence that actually gives it. It was also another reason that I kind of felt like she was evil earlier, because I was like, well, that's a star name. (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so we have a few other characters to talk about that weren't focused on as much, but still are worth discussing. The first is Dumbledore, or more specifically, a painting of Dumbledore, (laughs) which is troublesome from a writing perspective, especially since she set up this concept that the paintings are not the people themselves, and McGonagall even reminds Harry of this after Dumbledore gives him that advice that Harry takes very poorly. So you aren't really able to show a lot of character growth for him and yet they did but I liked it so much I don't care. (laughs) I feel like I've read somewhere that when they're being painted, the people being painted will put their memories and put part of themselves into those paintings and so they do have those traces of those past on people. Right, like it's still got his experiences and his wisdom and his basic character traits. Where real Dumbledore wouldn't have said, I love you, paint Dumbledore still remembers that feeling and so is able to express that with all the feeling. I like that take on it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. You're making me feel better. Thank you. (laughs) That's what I've been researching this whole time. (laughs) I'm like, I want to love this so much. The one line with Dumbledore that really struck a chord with me is when he's talking about I knew that it would happen all over again, that where I loved, I would cause irreparable damage. I am no fit person to love, and I have never loved without causing harm. If that isn't just the most telling thing about Dumbledore's motivations and everything. It was such a redemption for him, because I think a lot of the fandom has just been like, okay, he's flawed. He actually kind of sucks as a person. (laughs) The fandom has gone through a big journey with both Snape and Dumbledore, where when we first find out that Snape is in love with Lily, everyone was all, oh, Snape, the poor tortured hero. He's so sympathetic and we love him. And then they kind of 
don't know. A lot of people are still like that, but then people also kind of came around and were like, oh, just kidding, he actually really does There's suck. some problems with that relationship. And then hopefully most people have come to the same realization as Harry that, you know, he's a complex character and has good and bad things about him, but yeah. he's also just still a bully. And then they went through a similar journey with Dumbledore where, you know, he starts off as this character that everyone idolizes, like, as Harry does. I think we've kind of went through the same journey as Harry did, where yeah. we adored him, yeah. he was everyone's favorite, he had all these kooky traits and funny quotes, he was so wise, and then we see this darker side of him, and it's very troubling, but we kind of try to cling to it yeah. the same way Harry does, and then eventually, I feel like a lot of the fandom now specifically is like, well, Dumbledore's the worst, mm -hmm. and we hate him. Mm-hmm. But this play kind of shows the next point you should be getting to, which is, you know, you can still love him, and yet he has some very deep, troubling flaws. Kind of like this play. <laughs> hey! <laughs> um, so <sorry>. introspective. <laughs> Isn't it curious that the most troubled character in the play is named after these two very troublesome and flawed human beings? How interesting. It's How almost clever. Like it was done on purpose. <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely liked... That, that one quote, how he's never loved without causing harm, because it just brought back that whole memory of Grindelwald with Oof. Ariana, with his brother, everything that he's done that has, like, made him feel incapable of loving. <laughs> that really deepened his character for me, so. All right. Cedric. Oh, my gosh. I have nothing good to say about this, and I refuse really to trying. accept. This is one, like, I'm trying to be, see the positives in all sides of this where I have critiques. I can't do it with this one. Cedric Diggory would never, never, ever, ever join Voldemort. He wouldn't do it. And beyond period. that, okay, so, like, let's say he was imperious, and so that's why he did it. They just, you know, didn't mention that because Scorpius was looking in Voldemort's records, and Voldemort just wanted him to be a bad guy. I don't know. Let's just say that. It's still problematic because they had such a potential to explain why Cedric wasn't spare that they kept saying he was throughout both the books and this play when he when he when we first started getting into this after the first play i thought that they were going with this one theme about spares of no cedric had to die because if he hadn't everything would have been different voldemort would have won and they did do that but they made this twist on it where it was less about cedric needed to die because he represented something you know symbolically and moved you know both dark forces and good forces like that was really the catalyst for everyone to like take sides yeah rather than doing that they made it more based on like oh because he was humiliated he became a bad guy and that's why and that's where we run into the trouble because it's so hard for anyone who has read the books to believe because cedric was so noble yeah and good and generous and willing to be humiliated i think yeah. i mean i just can't see him getting embarrassed over something enough to he, turn that better like his father embarrassed him all the time because he kept praising him and he didn't want to be praised and so like he was more humble than amos would want people to think. <laughs> I think one of the most standout characteristics of Cedric Diggory as a character is this deep-rooted sense of fairness that he has. Yes. And he for like him to... Hufflepuff. <laughs> for him to turn to the dark side oh because gosh. he got embarrassed No, is just wrong. It just makes me feel like they're just trampling over his grave because everything that he stood for, being that good and brave boy, all of a sudden we can't mourn that Cedric anymore. Because we have a knowledge of this potential alternative 
that he's he has the potential to become a dark and dangerous man. And that just, like, almost twists his death, which was so key. It was the very first innocent public death in the book series, in the war. And it just twists that into, okay, well, good thing he died because, whew, dodged a bullet there. Yeah. And it's just heartbreaking, especially for Hufflepuffs, who don't catch a break. Like, that was her <laughs> one character. We had him, and we had Tonks, who was, like, barely even mentioned. No one even knows she's a Hufflepuff, so. And they corrupted him. Ugh. <laughs> I even bought his wand the week before I saw the play. Oh, my god! Literally bought his wand in England and was so happy about seeing his name in the program and then just devastated. So, yeah, I mean, if you, any of you have any kind of explanation, we'd love to hear it. But just to put it all out there, I'm probably not going to buy it because I reject mm-hmm. this flat out. For me, he was imperialist. And also, I... <laughs> literally blacked out the lines that talk about him killing Neville Longbottom in my book. <laughs> that was so awful. Like, I do like the fact that Neville is the is the point. That, like, he is that important, that he was the turning point. I don't like that it was Cedric Diggory who did it. Yeah, the fact that it was very explicitly stated that, hey, if Neville was gone, Voldemort would have won. He was very important. But Cedric shouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it. And there's the argument where it's a play, so they don't have time or space to, like, show you the steps that he took to get to that place, whatever it was. This was just lazy writing. Maybe it was loneliness and pain and whatever. But I just, I I feel like I have a solution. Just seeing it for the first time, I told Sonia Friedman, I, like, talked to the producer after the play, (laughs) and I told her, I was like, Neville Longbottom could have been trying to protect Cedric in the battle, and that's why he got killed by a Death Eater. That's so easy to Fixed. do. Boom, problem solved. Yeah. All it took was just, like, one line switch. So don't give me this BS about, oh, it just needed to be this way because his father thinks of this and it's a father-son thing. No, that's, it's, no. It's just lazy. <sighs> give me my Hufflepuff back. <laughs> okay, I feel like we should move on. Or we, we should. Can... <laughs> this is literally my least favorite thing about this play, yeah. so. Okay, uh, McGonagall? This is all you, girl. You love her. I don't really actually have a whole lot to say about her other than the fact that I loved her. Mm -hmm. I didn't really like the way Harry and Hermione treated her at times, Mm -hmm. but I felt like she was pretty true to her character. She stood up for herself. And she called people out on their baloney. Shame on you, Hermione Granger. Oh, she's just so good. McGonagall for president. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Snape. He was weird. Yeah, I didn't like this characterization of Snape. I think it was. It felt more like fan service than anything else in the play. That's the perfect way to express my feelings for it. It was just kind of like, oh well, we like Snape now, right? So here's him being good and look at him being a good guy, being nice and smiling softly at Umbridge. Who smiles softly? Who's like in that kind of situation? Especially since, Snape. Since when has Snape smiled? If ever. he ever smiles, it's like a smirk, like a yeah. ha ha. Potter's in trouble again. Yeah. Uh, it was weird. He's spouting all this, like, proverbial wisdom and being all emotionally supportive to Scorpius. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, I... Him being moved by Harry naming his child after him. I'm just like, please. He would have been like, Ugh. A potter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a potter now. <laughs> he would not be happy with that. I, it wasn't the worst they could have done with him, but right. it just didn't feel very authentic. No. That was the most fanfiction-y part for me. It was kind of just this sort of posthumously glorifying him, and it didn't feel very true. 
So, others? Um, we kind of talked about everything we have to say about Rose. Basically, that she wasn't really there, and there was a potential for a character arc there, and yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah. Amos Diggory? I have anything to say about him. I we, we will say one thing about the difference for me reading it and Alexis having seen it first is there's a line toward the end where he, what is it he says? He sees both Harry and Draco entering the nursing home or old folks home and he's just like, oh, Harry and Draco, I'm so blessed. And since I had not seen that, I read that as very sardonic because that was mm-hmm. sort of the, the characterization attitude he'd portrayed so far in the book so i read it as oh harry and draco i'm so blessed like mm-hmm. great i have to deal with these two who won't help me with my problems right because i didn't really see him as being jinxed entirely i just interpreted him as being jinxed into thinking that delphi was his right niece but that the emotions he was portraying were still yeah. authentically his. I think he probably still has issues. Like, he misses Cedric. Yeah, I mean, he's always been kind of a stinker. He's Yeah, he's kind of... He doesn't let go of the past. <laughs> like some other characters we know. And, and so my mom works in, in an old folks' home, and you see something that happens a lot with people with dementia is that old traits that they have tend to come out a lot more and be exaggerated because the filter kind of is mm, gone. Yeah. So I could see that being a real thing for him. Right. Because, I mean, we have pretty much next to no knowledge of what getting old is like in the wizarding <laughs> world. Oh, my god. If gosh, you're not yeah. someone like Dumbledore who just continues <laughs> to be awesome but with whiter hair. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we have next to no knowledge about any of that. So that's kind of how I interpreted that. It was just he was just didn't have a filter anymore. But really, he was like being genuinely, like, surprised that they would visit him. I don't think he remembered them visiting. He doesn't remember the visit. He just seemed like a really kind old man who was just, like, being attacked all of a sudden by these two, like, adults who would think that he's in in with the evil people. So that, when she told me about that, that really surprised me, and it's really going to change the way I read him the next time I go through this. Yeah. Voldemort? I thought, I didn't like how they were relying on Voldemort as, by the way, I just, I noticed that she's pronouncing this as Voldemort. Because that's how they pronounce it in the play, and I'm obsessed with it. I'm trying to adopt it, so I might have slipped up from time to time. But, um... I I don't know if I'll get there or not, but we'll see. (laughs) I don't like how he was, like, the go-to bad guy again. Like, we've destroyed Voldemort. We don't have to, like, go back and revisit those pains again. But I did kind of like how his, his lack of presence was the most terrifying part of the play. Like, you didn't see him. You saw Umbridge in the the worst timeline. And we get, like, Harry's dreams. And Harry's dreams and, like, his hands reaching out. Like, those are super creepy. So, I don't know. I think it, it was a little bit lazy, but at the same time, it was effective. It was scary. And it was kind of good in the sense that it did show his lingering presence to the people who were there for the war. Because, yeah. I mean, that was a huge formative part of their childhood. And, you know... I could see that never really going away for them. Right. Yeah. Craig. Okay, so here's the thing about Craig. You don't remember him. I didn't remember him. That's the problem, guys, because guess what? He was the one fatality in this entire play. He and if was this the was spared. If this was book four, they would have a speech about it, about why he was important, about what he stood for. But instead, he dies and everyone forgets who Craig is. And that the just puts thing. another nail in the Cedric Diggory coffin. The spares matter. They matter. Like, let me know who Craig is. Like, 
He's a Slytherin. That's all I know. We know that he was kind of like a, a snitch. <laughs> a busybody. He's like a Hermione Slytherin. Yeah. I miss Craig. I don't even know Craig. I feel bad about Craig. Craig, we miss you. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, Moaning Myrtle showed up kind of unexpectedly to me. It was weird for me because she was super perky and mm. cheerful and flirty. Isn't everyone so naughty? <laughs> And I don't know if I am interpreting this correctly or not, but my perception of the way that she has built ghosts in this universe is that they're stuck. Like, they chose not to go through the gate or to go onward or whatever. So the traits that they have at death are pretty much their traits for eternity. And yes, some experiences that they have can change some of their approaches to things, I guess, to an extent. Like, Myrtle would definitely feel positively toward Harry and Draco specifically because she had those experiences with him, with them, and got to connect with them, which is something she probably didn't get to do a whole lot because she was super annoying. Mm -hmm. But it just felt weird to me. Was it weird in the play, or just funny? I thought funny? she was identical to the movie Myrtle that we knew. Maybe that's movies. why I had such a problem with it, because yeah. I didn't particularly love movie Myrtle. I thought she was funny, and I thought the actress who was portraying her was very good, Yeah, but she was funny in the wrong ways. Like, the thing that was supposed to be funny about her is that she just, like, could not stop crying and yeah. took everything personally. And Which it probably would have been really obnoxious in a film. Yeah. When they had to get, like, information out from her. So, I can see why they would take the same route as the film in this case. But I see why you're disappointed. I didn't love it, but, I, you know, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. Right. I can move on. Um, and then just the missing characters we've talked about. One character I was really surprised not to see was Hugo. Yeah, me too. He was mentioned, like, what, three times in yep. the whole play? And we so, never saw name. him. And I asked Alexis if we ever actually see him physically on the stage, and nope. it doesn't happen. So that was kind of disappointing. I forget, how much younger is he? I think he's only a year younger. So he would have been at Hogwarts. I think he's with Lily. So I would have expected him to get sorted with Lily. And it just, he's not mentioned, he's not there. Also, Teddy Lupin. I really wanted to see Teddy, but that's okay. That one I understand, even though it's disappointing just because we want to see him, but he's not really relevant to the plot. Yeah, I fully expected to see Neville Longbottom since we were going into Hogwarts. So that was really disappointing. That was very disappointing. That's okay. All right, on to the rest of the story. Let's talk about this plot. So, Sorting Hat. Let's get into the houses, shall we? So, um, I guess we should start with just Slytherin. I mean, we talked a little bit about how Scorpius didn't feel very Slytherin in the beginning, and then we saw those traits coming out over time. You know, he became more decisive, started wanting things for himself. We definitely saw his cunning come out, whereas before it was just kind of geeky nerdiness liking the information for the information's sake but then later on he uses that knowledge and that intelligence of his to get what he wants especially when it comes to Delphi and like you were talking about getting her to stall and yeah kind of talking her around the whole time turn or the whole prophecy issue he definitely shows his cunning in buying time in the maze with Delphi like you said um, and also I think he shows quite a bit of cunning when he fain- he fakes losing the time turner. 
That was great. That was such quick thinking. Like, I thought he actually lost it. I, I 100% believed him. Like, he was just, like, splashing around the water, just like, <laughs> where is it? And I was just like, oh, child, like, come on. <laughs> but he was actually just thinking really quickly. And I think that fast-on-your-feet mentality is very Slytherin. Yeah. I also found that ambition in his book smarts. Like, he wouldn't be that smart if he wasn't, I don't know, I think that could be a drive behind his, like, wanting to know everything about everything, potions and history. Especially because um, he was so isolated. You yeah. Know, he would want to kind of find that escape through books. He must be good at something. Yeah. Also, the fact that he goes after Rose is ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And the fact that he's, like, willing to try out for Quidditch in the end of it. Like, yeah. that's that's ambitious. About for, that. not for ha- Like, for having not played Quidditch his whole life, basically. All of a sudden, he's like, you know what? If I could do it in an alternate reality, I'm going to do it here. He doesn't have to do that, but he's just like, I want to do it. So, I don't know. Maybe that's not ambition, but I think it could be seen as such. I think shrewd, it's a word that I've seen on Slytherin shirts. I'm not sure if it's actually, it's also one with bad connotations. So I'd rather say intuition. (laughs) He caught on to Delphi far before Albus even suspected her. And so that sort of puts Albus on the hat stall side of things, which I believe he was full hat stall for reasons we'll get to. And then lastly, but not least, is his resourcefulness. He was able to, like, whip up a potion in Godric's Hollow. He was just like, potion store. There. Got it. Like, oh, she does Mockador. Let's go in. <laughs> His ability to even have gotten through the darkest timeline and returned at all was all resourcefulness. It was very impressive. He knew of all the people here, Snape is the one person left that he knew of that he could trust and talk to. And so he used that. He was able to get what he wanted with what little he had. I do have to say about the whole whipping up a potion thing, though. When he suggests turning Harry into Voldemort with Polyjuice Potion, <laughs> I was like, doesn't Polyjuice Potion was take, that, like, at least... Scorpius? I'm pretty sure it was. Oh, He's like, yeah. Alice. Well, whoever suggested <laughs> it. I was like, doesn't Polyjuice Potion take at least a month to brew? Yeah. Like, yeah. give us some so, credit here. Where I, like, <laughs> I really struggled to see Scorpius as a Slytherin until I really gave it thought. The houses in Cursed Child are so interesting to me because Rose is described as ambitious and time after time again, Albus and Scorpius are described as being brave, which are notoriously flip-flopped in the houses that they were sorted into. So I think the Cursed Child is showing us like, hey, look, you're not all Slytherin. It doesn't mean like you can't be brave or you can't be ambitious if you're in Gryffindor. I think it was showing us like you can be a lot of parts of these all, all together. And I have, I still haven't really thought about it to the extent that I want to. Well, and I personally have always kind of viewed houses as more what matters to you over what you have in abundance. Right. So perhaps Rose really values those traits of bravery and courage more than she values the traits that she's portraying more of ambition and vice versa for Albus and Scorpius. Right. Oh, and someone mentioned on Tumblr that the music that played when Rose was getting sorted and the music that played when Scorpius was getting sorted were different, but when Albus was getting sorted, they were overlapping. And so that's why I think it was a hat stall. That's cool. Yeah, I think he could have chosen either way, but because he noticed he noticed that Scorpius was alone, he chose to go with Slytherin. Well, I would think it was kind of a given that he'd be a hat stall since in one alternate reality he was a Gryffindor. Panju. We didn't talk about Panju! Panju. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to put this one thing in there about Panju. I just feel so bad that they didn't even consider erasing him from his timeline. They didn't yeah. even consider, like, hey, let's just get Panju back because he exists and we don't want to just erase him. But no, 
But at the same time, how would they do that? Yeah, I know. Iran, we need you to go have an illicit affair. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not like that. I just felt really bad that Panju was just not even thought twice Yeah, they didn't even consider the fact that, like, well, this kid exists now, but we're going to undo that. Yeah, like, he has a whole life and learned so many things. And sure, he's a stinker, but so are you. And (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I feel bad for Panju. Sorry, Panju. The casualty of the plot necessities. Yeah. Um, did we want to not talk about time turners? Okay, so here's the thing about time turners, y'all. <laughs> Everyone's arguing about them, and it all goes so over my head after a certain point. So <laughs> I'm just going to link you to two Reddit posts that talk about the plausibility of time turners, that they're, they're, they are possible in the Harry Potter canon to an extent, more so than you might think, because you're like, oh, that's not like Hermione's time turner. There's a whole story about it. You can read up on it. My take on it wasn't necessarily that they were not possible within the universe, because, I mean, the possibility that someone would start experimenting to create a new one seemed actually pretty likely because of the fact that they were all destroyed. Right. It was outside of the canon, the fact that J.K. Rowling intentionally got rid of all the time-turners because of all of the plot problems they presented just by existing. Right. For her to be okay with bringing them back and having them be central to this plot was odd to me and very surprising especially considering how protective she is of the story for her to be okay with them bringing back something that she very intentionally got rid of right because it would lead to bad writing that was the (laughs) one thing that bothered me the most about the play when i first saw it i remember thinking i wanted to see how the wizarding world is doing post potter i don't want to revisit what i already know about the past and so it, that was one of the problems I had. I've since just swallowed my pride or expectations. I've since just <laughs> let it go. I mean, the problem with time turners and the reasoning that she had for getting rid of them is if they exist, basically nothing you write, nothing that happens in this universe can matter as much as it should because people have the ability to go back and change it. Right. So there's any number of possibilities and she just felt the need to get rid of that, so she did, but now it's back. Anyway, let's talk about prophecies. Yeah, this is all you, girl. It was interesting to me that Delphi was so fixated on making this prophecy come true when it already had. I mean, the prophecy says that, like, this child, the unseen child, is gonna murder his father, and that's when the Dark Lord is gonna return. But the thing is, it doesn't say this is going to happen. It says if this happens, then that's the conditions under which the Dark Lord will return, if that makes sense. So that doesn't necessarily imply that the Dark Lord's return is permanent. She went back and, or she sent them back. This all happened. The Dark Lord returned. They just undid it. So the prophecy was fulfilled. (laughs) She just wants to fulfill it again. I didn't even consider that. I think that was another just kind of showing that she doesn't really have a whole lot of foresight, and she hadn't really considered the nature of prophecies very deeply. But guys, it was so cool in the theater, because as soon as, like, the trio found out about the prophecy, like, the black light came on, and it was written all over the entire theater. That is so cool. It was everywhere. I did not know that. And you were just like, wow, this girl's nutso. (laughs) So, that was cool. Also, so... When I was reading, I took this prophecy a lot more literally than Harry did. Harry was like, I didn't, like, I didn't see Albus as my child. Like, he was feeling these things and I didn't see him, so he was the unseen child. Whereas I was reading and I was like, well, Harry didn't see Albus go back in time. 
and that was what caused him to die. <laughs> Therefore, he's the unseen child. Like, I took it as <laughs> literal vision. Yeah. But also, I feel like the double meaning of a prophecy fits perfectly well, so yeah. I'm cool with it. I just thought that was kind of funny. Harry's getting all metaphorical, and here I am being Captain Literal. We already covered a little bit about the production versus writing, but I did notice that what a lot of people were thinking were, was missing from the whole thing was J.K.'s writing style. And I think that came out more in the production of the piece than it did in the script, because a lot of it was, like, these visual little things that happened that were just, like, cute and unnecessary and magical, and just, like, these little little things. Just little Archie in his nightdress things. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, like, you don't get that in the writing of it, but in the stage play itself, there were a lot of those little things, one of which was in the old folks' home. Oh my gosh. So when they first get to the old folks' home, it's just like this wild craziness that's happening, like it describes in the book. But like, there's also this comedic moment, and maybe I don't want to tell people because then I'll like spoil it if you see it. But so there's this one lady who's in a rocking chair, just rocking back and forth and pulling something from her mouth, like a, you know, like a typical muggle magic trick. Like the scarves tied together. So she's just pulling the scarf or whatever it is from her mouth continually, just cackling and just walking back and forth. And, like, when finally everyone notices Albus and Severus are there, they all stop. But this lady's still going and just, like, cackling. She means Albus and Scorpius. Oh, shoot. (laughs) I did this last episode, too. (laughs) I hid my tracks well because I'm like, oh, it's not about Severus. I'm like, oh, but you don't know. (laughs) Albus Severus, why is your name so close to your best friend's name? Anyway, <laughs> when Albus and Scorpius arrive, <laughs> then everyone stops. It's just hilarious, and I love it. So, like, little things like that. Um, speaking of little things, can we talk about the trolley witch? <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. It was so weird. It was weird. It was weird in the play, too. Was it supposed to be funny? No. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the funny thing is, when she comes to the top, top of the thing, it's funny when they're like, uh... Uh, Albus, the trolley witch, and he's like, you think about sweets now? You know, like, that, that's yeah. funny. But her coming out and having, like, pencils coming out of her why fingers. Why she trying to murder these children? I know. I'm just like, why are there spikes? Like, you could have a net coming out of her fingers. Like, that makes sense to trap them. And also, just in the wizarding world in general, like, what is she? I don't know. Is she maybe a hag? Oh, but they eat children. Ugh. So I would hope not. <laughs> or just, a, is she a person who's had a lot of magic done on her? In which I case, I think she's why, a didn't, beast. why didn't Voldemort try and get in on that? Oh my gosh. Well, he didn't know. I don't think anyone knew. It's just weird. It felt but out why of place. spikes? That's so dangerous. These are children. <laughs> like, okay, this is Hogwarts we're talking about. Yeah, it was just weird. I didn't get it. Yeah. Did anyone else get it? I didn't get it. The fact that the trolley witch said Sirius Black and his cronies was uh-huh. interesting to me, and I liked it, that it wasn't James Potter and his cronies, it was Sirius Black and his cronies. <laughs> so at that point, I mean, James Potter wasn't the famous one for having died, he was just one of those group. For, so for her to remember Sirius Black more clearly, I, like that. I, I enjoyed that. That's good. Can we talk about just the whole for Voldemort and Valor thing, and... <laughs> Voldemort Day and a blood ball. Yeah. That was cheesy as heck. Yeah. <laughs> and when the whole line about her having blood on her shoes, I didn't get both times I watched it. Wait, where? Where she's like, oh, Potter, I got blood on my shoes oh, again. Yeah. Like and she says, oh, Potter. I thought, I thought she was being metaphorical. 
Because, like, she didn't actually check her shoes. I don't know. I was just really confused about it. I didn't think she was metaphorical, but again, I wasn't watching someone who wasn't physically looking at their (laughs) shoes, so that makes sense. Yeah. But it also leads me to another thing I was going to mention. I found it weird that they were using Dumbledore's name in place of Merlin, like, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, for the love of Dumbledore or whatever. It feels a little early, because there are a lot of people alive who still knew him. Right. And it's early to be kind of mythicizing him as much as to have him part of like the everyday vernacular especially since his name is so long yeah what if they're like oh albus it made sense with merlin because he lived hundreds of years ago in this and the legend yeah is legendary so you know maybe in a few hundred years it would make more sense (laughs) but right now for someone like ron to say it was weird because he knew dumbledore yeah that is weird so yeah those things were kind of just weird to me. A blood ball. Really? <laughs> a blood ball? Uh, yeah. And the screams of muggles. I'm like, didn't they kill him already? The, come on. Boring. <laughs> I, just, I feel like they just had to kind of hammer in, like, they're, they're so evil. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. We don't have time for... <laughs> Mallory and I had planned to go over all of our favorite Scorpius quotes from the play. But we are just running out of time. So instead, we're just going to make a whole new segment of just a Scorpius quote per episode. That sounds fun. So today's is just going to be the, uh, remember last episode when I said we have a new tagline? Ah, yes. And I wondered what it was going to be. Now we know. Now we know. Wow. Squeak. My geekness is quivering. What a dork. (laughs) He's such a dork. (laughs) And I cannot do it justice. The way he said it was so funny. I just love it. I'm glad, because I feel like you found it funnier than I did, but I just interpreted that as, well, he must have performed it really well. Because yeah. on script, I was like... It's a little awkward on script. Wow. <laughs> but he was, just, he was just, like, kind of freaking out. He was like, whoa, whoa, wait, that's her. <laughs> just like any one of us would have been in the presence of any one of, you know, our heroes. So, it was cute. All right, well, that concludes our discussion of Cursed Child. Thanks for listening. We would love to hear your feedback, any thoughts you had, especially anything you disagreed with us on, because Alexis and I tended to have pretty cohesive thoughts, and we would love to argue with some people. Not argue. (laughs) Argue doesn't have to be a bad thing. I guess Discuss. Discuss. Or discuss it. In a friendly way in which we, we just want some different perspectives on this. Also, we want to leave you with one last quote from Dumbledore himself, because I think it applies well to the whole cursed child happening. He said, Harry, there is never a perfect answer in this messy emotional world. Perfection is beyond the reach of humankind, beyond the reach of magic. So remember, this play was written with love. It is not perfect. Magic wouldn't have been able to make it perfect either. So just love what you can. Set aside what you don't. Yeah, it's there. And honestly, just be grateful that we have stuff. I don't know. I feel like we're a little bit entitled sometimes. We've, yeah, we need to realize that we've got a whole lot more material to work with now. Yeah. That's fun stuff. It is very fun. And finally, it's okay to not like the cursed child at all. We're not saying you have to. It's okay to love it and think it's perfect. Either way, that doesn't make you less of a fan. We're all fans here. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, because we are there now. 
to help people find us. Also, feel free to subscribe to the show so that you will never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter at Newtcast with this, and on Facebook slash Newtcast or at Newtcast.com. We'd love to hear from listeners and we really look forward to talking about these things with you. 